Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Today we have on Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro. Gabrielle has a PhD from Virginia Tech in nutrition, foods, and exercise. She's also been a professor there. She's a coach and has competed in multiple sports, including powerlifting, physique, and other endurance type sports. Today we talk all about the gut, how that pertains to health, how it pertains to exercise performance building muscle and all of the various topics that are associated with that if you want to tag myself on instagram to, to let us know that you're listening and supporting you can tag at adamac192 and if you want to tag gabrielle you can tag at vitamin phd or as she likes to say vitamin phd you can always always find more information about coaching with myself at healthmastery.co or down in the show notes and you'll also find all of the links to gabrielle's uh, coaching her research that she's doing as well as all of her social media links so thank you for listening and without further ado let's get into the episode with gabrielle so gabrielle thank you for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for having me it's nice to see you again from a distance after uh, yeah. dublin last year <laughs> yeah and apologies on the time i know it's very early uh 8 15 or 17 your time right yeah i actually get up around like 4 30 or 5 well, in the morning so i'm i'm good to go <laughs> well i actually planned to get up at 6 and i woke up at 6 and then i fell back asleep and got up at uh, 8 45 <laughs> so um you're miles ahead of me but but yes yeah, so, so for those who don't uh, know who you are please introduce yourself um who you are and uh, what you're your, where you're from and what you do yeah, sure. So um, I am on Instagram uh, as a vitamin PhD. I am a former faculty member in exercise science and had sort of an interesting um, pathway to becoming um, a gut microbiome science communicator uh, on Instagram. So my um, undergrad degree was actually in exercise science and I originally intended to like go on to you know, run and own a gym. And um, over the course of my undergrad career, I really fell in love with anatomy and physiology and um, skeletal muscle physiology specifically. And I decided that I wanted to go the academic route. And so I went from my bachelor's to a PhD in human nutrition, foods and exercise from Virginia Tech. And um, my side project looking at probiotic supplementation as a potential um, a protective intervention during high fat feeding became my main project because we uh, most of the samples from the main project um, looking at uh, the effects of high fat feeding on hypertrophy. So uh, it was a sort of serendipitous event, and um, I didn't really intend to do anything with the gut microbiome after that. I went on to teach for four years in exercise science, primarily sport nutrition, anatomy and phys, and some of like the intro to exercise science courses. And in my fourth year, uh, Dr. Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization uh, came upon some of my um, my posts. I had a tiny little blog, and I was posting a lot in the International Society of Sport Nutrition because I was getting ready for that exam. And um, he appreciated the way that I was interacting with um, the other members there in terms of having sort of cordial debates. 
and um, recruited me to, to Renaissance periodization. And in that fourth year of teaching, I had to kind of make a decision between pursuing um, promotion, which meant, you know, focusing more on, on, on trying to publish, which was a challenge at the time because my institution was primarily teaching focused. We didn't have a research lab and I'm more of like a benchtop researcher. And so it was a, a combination of, okay, um, you know, trying to find ways that we could do human subjects research in this lab with undergraduates, you know, in an undergraduate appropriate way, um, just on weekends. <laughs> so that was kind of a challenge. And um, I was really, I was finding so much fulfillment in coaching. At, and, and it was, and, and then, you know, having the opportunity to, to, um, you know, give talks and things like that and have speaking engagements. And so I decided to um, resign that year and go into coaching full time. And shortly thereafter, I started my own business as well, Vitamin PhD Nutrition, um, through which I provide telehealth uh, and an email coaching combinations to clients. And so I work with two fairly different populations um, with my RP uh, clients versus my, my telehealth clients. Um, and then my... Um, I, I guess, I guess the, the way that I came onto the scene on Instagram was just that, uh, you know, Dr. Mike, uh, connected me with Steve Hall from Revive Stronger for my first ever podcast several years ago. And we talked about, um, the gut microbiome and, and gut health. And since then, it seems like it's been a snowball effect that people have become more and more interested in gut microbiome research. And I've been really fortunate to, you know, be able to speak about it a great deal. Um, I'm in the tail end of finishing a book. So the, the, Renaissance periodization, um, big book of gut microbiome science. And um, that's what I try to do now is I try to empower people with evidence-based information so that they can make informed choices uh, when it comes to navigating sort of the gut health marketing um, mm. on Instagram and social media. I've actually got like a, a really messy desktop. I'm just a messy person. I like to be, uh, I like to be like, think I'm cl- like organized, but I just can't. But I have a book. I actually haven't even read oh. this book. It's just been here for for like months. <laughs> so I have that. I have that too. Where do I have it? I feel like it's. Uh, oh, it's it not went, on my shelf right now. Oh, it's it in, actually. So I, yeah. I'm re, I'm in the process of like unpacking and re, I've relocated and whatnot. And so, yeah. um, yeah, my books are just scattered everywhere. But I yeah. have that book. I, I posted about that on Instagram. Oh, really? Yeah, I buy way too many books that I just don't really read. And I, I think I ended up listening to an Audible because usually I'm fantasized about reading it so that I don't mm-hmm. become like illiterate, but I usually just listen to an audible. Um, but you also have, for those who are kind of listening to this on a podcast, I just re- raised up a book called Gut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a book about gut health, I assume. Um, I can't remember. Um, but so you also have some experience in, in kind of the, the competitive side of things, the bodybuilding, mm-hmm. strength sports. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience there, just you know yourself and working with clients because I know there's a lot of um, I think this is the same for probably all uh, experts in in nutrition or or health that it's unless you have some experience in specific sports or endeavors it's hard to kind of relate and 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 even think from different perspectives but you have experience in in bodybuilding right yeah yeah so I have some
me just um, being a, a trail runner. And I did quite a few races when I was living in Virginia, when I was in grad school and undergrad. Um, so I was full on, you know, focused on endurance. Um, and anyone who's familiar with, with trail races, it's very different from running uh, um, on, on pavement. Um, just a different set of, of challenges and obstacles. So I did that for quite some time. When I relocated to, to Georgia to teach, I got into jujitsu and I was doing that for quite a while. And then my jujitsu, my strength coach um, said, you know, you've got like a really good muscle base. Why don't you try bodybuilding? And I was like, sure, I love to lift. I mean, I've loved to lift since I was 19. And I did, you know, little like um, power, like I don't even say it's not a powerlifting competition, it's like bench press competitions. I remember I won my bench press competition my, my junior year of undergrad, I think. Um, so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And, um, so I, I did a women's physique competition and, um, unfortunately I, you know, I had had a history of, um, disordered eating. And so I went through treatment for, um, eating disorder. I had eating NOS through graduate school. It was a few years of treatment. And, um, I really believe that, you know, for folks who have a history of, of an eating disorder, or even disordered eating to some extent, um, there's a, a um, there's an aspect of just kind of like lifelong management that you mm. kind of have these, you know, thought patterns and, and perhaps some behavioral patterns that are still sort of entrenched in, in that belief system and, you know, the, the foundations and, and life experiences that might lead to that. So I did see a really significant reemergence of uh, many of my disordered eating patterns after that competition, which is probably something that a lot of people can attest to. Um, obviously, physique athletes are at highest risk for development of eating disorders, and, and um, you know, and any any athlete that's in a weight class sport or a sport where physique is uh, you know primary concern. Um, and just the, the world of bodybuilding is about, um, you know, judgment of one's appearance. Uh, you know, we, we don't, we're on stage. We're not about performance. We're not at our strongest. We're not at our most, um, fit and capable, you know, we're at our most depleted and weakest and like hardly functioning. We've been starving ourselves for many months. Um, and so it makes sense that that leads to some eating, um, psychopathology, and uh, um, so after that, I really felt that I had to kind of change direction. And um, I got into powerlifting um, as sort of tangential, you know, it still is a weight class sport. There's still a risk of disordered eating, um, but there's more of a performance focus. And so you, you know, at, at some point you lose the advantage of strength to weight ratio when you get to a place where your strength suffers because you're trying to control your body weight. And so I found that that I, I started to get into that that pattern again, and so I kind of went down that slope again. And I thought, you know, I mean, there's there this, there's something to this, you know, and I kind of need to like take a break and you know see if I can reframe my identity as a person who enjoys physical activity again, and um, as a person who. Um, can engage in athletic endeavors, um, but not necessarily like uh, with that same identity of like, oh, I have to look a certain way yeah. or, you know, these expectations that come from being an athlete in a physique sport or in a weight class sport or a person who talks in front of people about fitness, you know, just yeah. as like a, uh, as a, a, especially as a female in the industry. Um, so that 
brought me to kind of getting back to my roots of, of understanding behavior change. This was something that I had um, studied, you know, years prior in, in graduate school. Um, and I was really interested in sort of the endocrinology and um, the, the psychology and the neuroscience of, of disordered eating. And that's when I really started to look into how I could become the type of coach that would mitigate risk and harm in people who want to, you know, intentionally modify their weight. Um, Cause it is kind of like a contact sport, you know, when we want to diet, especially if it's something that's like to get on stage that we have to be aware and our clients have to be aware of the potential risks um, and the potential harm. Like we, you know, we have to know about potential injuries for playing a contact sport so they can provide informed consent. I wouldn't say that all intentional weight loss is inherently disordered or that there are no safe ways in which we can engage in intentional weight loss, that there is probably a greater um, uh, capability uh, or a greater, a greater chance of risk compared to taking like a weight neutral approach where we're focused just on health and, and improving, um, you know, vitality. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, a good point you made. Um, is that people need to be careful careful when they suggest to others that you should compete just because mm-hmm. someone looks good. You know, there's people yeah. who I have clients that like are very genetically like blessed. You can tell for the insertions and just their ability to build muscle. But if they don't want to compete, like pushing them or even suggesting it, it it's not just you're going to stand on stage. It's you're putting yourself through, you know, something that's very, very difficult. And I myself, I don't feel like I have any uh, eating you know, issues, you know, maybe I eat too much sometimes, but uh, other than that, I mean, even when I competed, when I get very, very lean, you know, I do tend to sometimes binge. And I know that yeah. from having, you know, having done three seasons of, of competing over the last like, 10 years or so is that, you know, that, that comes back as a, or that falls away as a gain weight. But for somebody who has already got some issues, you know, putting yourself and judging it, getting being judged subjectively by other people and, and then you're compounding, you know, basically relative energy deficiency on top of that. And just your, your mind goes a bit crazy as well. It's, it's not ideal. So, yeah, I don't think it's people don't don't do it purposely. They don't, they don't mean to mean harm, but just it's not like, oh, you're seven foot tall. You should play basketball. It's like, right. you, know, it's the same. you know, it's kind of it sounds the same, but it's not really. Um, right. And I know you've, you've been doing a lot on the, the coach, you know, promoting coaching you know, different types of coaching or, or i suppose client-centered coaching recently and I, I one i really do appreciate that because it's uh something that i think a lot of people don't you know just because someone looks good or they've done well themselves doesn't mean they're a good coach and i've i'm nearly finished the uh, precision nutrition level two and oh, nice. i but i've been coaching for a while but it really helps you understand you know what it actually means and it, it's not just because someone's you know a you know, a mother with two kids just needs to lose a bit of weight. It's not that, you know, they're the only ones who need client-centered approach. And you just because someone wants to be a bodybuilder means you have to kind of hammer them as if it was an animal pack ad or something like that. But, but yeah, I, I, that's, uh, that's definitely something that, um, you know, your, your stuff or your content on that is definitely something I recommend people who are coaches or even, even just clients to, to read up on. But today I especially wanted to, to, to look at your, or talk about your, your knowledge in the, the area of kind of, gut health and the, the microbiota and i know it's a very very complex topic because in my master's in nutrition i did a, just one module on uh, microbiology and it was so hard it took yeah. me like three, three or four times the amount of time as, as like the chemistry and everything else i was doing at the same time and i mm-hmm. still 
it's still just so hard to comprehend. Um, and I guess that's where we see when I, when I see people posting about like, Oh, I just do this to fix your gut or, you know, you need this to, this will change your gut. And then, you know, when they give advice on the gut, it's very hard to, to really take that on board. Um, so I guess that the first question is, you know, what, what, what does inflammation mean? Or, you know, cause people often say, you know, gut, and I know that's a huge topic, but when people often talk about, you know, gut inflammation and they, they sit, talk about removing certain foods or, or not eating certain foods or, or, or eating certain foods, you know, can you unpackage that at all you know, f- from your perspective? And I know that you don't like to really give it a direct answer specifically because we don't really know much, but what are your thoughts on just, you know, inflammation in terms of foods that we eat and, and just how the gut can affect our, our health overall? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, that is a lot to unpack. Well, I think I would preface by saying just a couple of things. When it comes to gut microbiome science, we have not established any causal relationship between the gut microbiome and any disease um, outside of specific pathogens that we know produce toxins that cause disease, something like a parasitic infection um, or specific strains of E. coli or streptococcus that are known to cause disease. But the gut microbiome as a whole, taking all of the microbial contents and all of their genetic information, we haven't been able to say, yes, we've found a profile, a specific ratio of microbes that causes this disease. What we find is that we see differences in individuals who have a disease versus the non-disease controls in a study. And from there, we can start to say, do we see any trends in the patterns that we see in IBS, for example, or colorectal cancer um, versus people who are healthy controls? When we aggregate the data, we take a bunch of people with IBS and compare them with a bunch of controls, we start to see, oh, okay, well, it seems that these are, the the profile that we see, which is very general still, is that it might be um, beneficial microbe depleted. So lower uh, numbers of beneficial microbes than we see in healthy controls. Or it might be pathogen enriched in the case of something like colorectal cancer compared to healthy controls. But when we try to look at two people who both have the same disease, there's so much inter-individual variability. So, so So much of a difference between those two people that they will have very different forms of the dysbiosis. Uh, and that's just the altered profile compared to the controls that we can't, you know, when we pare down to like individuals, your individual microbiome is still so unique to you. It's like a fingerprint. So it's still very difficult for us between that factor and then the differences in methodologies that we use to identify who is in that microbiome. Um, those that uh, heterogeneity between studies, those are two probably of the most confounding factors um, in trying to establish even a sense of, of causality. Now, what we can do is take fecal matter from a person with a disease or a healthy person and put it into a, a mouse, and that's a fecal microbiome transplant. And in some cases, we can, in that mouse that didn't have any bacteria before, we can recapitulate some of the symptoms of that disease. But there are also some significant limitations in that, because in a mouse, we don't see that the the mouse gut doesn't uh, support 
the same microbes as what we would see in a human gut. So it still is a mouse-flavored human microbiota. Um, and the other problem is that we have this, this phenomenon of pseudo-replication. Uh, pseudo so we will take one person's fecal transplant and put it into five mice. Now, do we call that an N of five? Or do we call that an N of one because it came from one human? And we're trying to recapitulate the, the symptoms of that one human. Probably we should be one mouse to one human. And that's what we would say. You know, that's our, that's our sample. Um, so we, and, and then the other thing is, even though we can cause some really significant um, changes in mice, in terms of, you know, if we uh, take uh, fecal matter from a donor with obesity and put that into a mouse, that mouse will, will become obese. We don't really see the same effects in humans. So there have been some trials, for example, where we've, we've done fecal microbiome transplants from a lean donor to a person with obesity, and it doesn't reverse the obesity. Okay, so it doesn't make that person then lean. So when we make statements, for example, about things like inflammation in the gut, Inflammation is an umbrella term very similar to saying like gut health or dysbiosis. That there are, there's a, there are acute versions of inflammation. That's something normal that we would experience after an exercise bout. We also have chronic inflammation. Now, when we're talking about the inflammation that's associated with metabolic disease, type 2 diabetes, or metabolic endotoxemia, which is a term that was coined maybe in the last couple decades in the area of gut microbiome research, um, that is a, a sort of a subclinical form of inflammation. So when we look at inflammation as sort of a spectrum, we have a, like a clinical cutoff for sepsis of, okay, this person is in the hospital. They're inflammatory markers, and there are many because we have multiple tissues releasing multiple versions of their own sort of inflammatory markers are clearly above what we would consider to be a normal range. And so that person is in the hospital, but metabolic to endotoxemia, which refers to an elevated level of lipopolysaccharide. It's a, um, a, a an immune, um, I should say it's a, it, it's a, it's a toxin that comes from uh, certain types of, of bacteria. And I hesitate to say toxin because people are like toxins, but that's probably what we, <laughs> that's the best, that's the best term for it. So it binds to immune receptors and it can cause um, cells like skeletal muscle cells to release some um, chemicals that would signal to other tissues. Hey, we have a problem here and we have to mount an immune response, but it's not sepsis. It's not what we would see in a person who has an infection. And we don't have a clear cutoff. So like metabolic endotoxemia, we don't even have a clear like, yes, this level of endotoxin is considered metabolic endotoxemia. So again, we have this huge problem of heterogeneity and a lack of replicability because we don't have clear cutoffs for these things. So when a person says something like inflammation, well, what do they mean? Like, are they looking at specific inflammatory markers and what's their range that they're considering is inflamed in a problematic way versus a normal level of, of immune activity. So, um, the, the, so I hope that kind of answers the question that there's not a great answer to that question because the science isn't there yet. We have some really significant limitations in the ways that we can 
measure these things. And yes, we can absolutely measure specific inflammatory markers. People uh, look at, um, you know, TNF-alpha, C-reactive protein, things like that. We can look at those, but we have to be very aware of the fact that, like, there are huge reference ranges for what's considered normal. And the, the fact that a person moves laterally from, like, a high end of normal to a low end of normal can we really say like, oh, we fixed inflammation in that person, you know? And that's if we're even measuring those things, which I think probably a lot of people really aren't. Yeah. So I, I guess when, when people think of inflammation or they're, they're re- digesting information, <laughs> to, to excuse the pun, um, from, from the media when, or, or whoever it is, that's, we see it a lot on, even on Instagram with educators or quote-unquote educators, that when we see information, people will think of, well, you know, when you have an inflamed, when you have a, a swollen arm, you know, you can see that inflammation. So mm-hmm. almost, you know, confer that to mean that, Oh, you know, my gut is swollen or it's, it's inflamed in terms of when you say my, my hand, my finger, my leg is inflamed the, mm-hmm. to, to that extent. So, you know, everything that we consume obviously is down to, we consume it and it gets digested and assimilated through to our gut or to our intestines. So how, how important is then the food that we eat in terms of if we're looking at building muscle specifically? Because I know with bodybuilders, um, you know, it seems to all, always be about the macros and just, you know, once you get your enough fiber so that you're not hungry, you know, fruits and vegetables, you, we probably should eat them because they're he- for, for health reasons. But I know that bodybuilders don't really tend to do that. How much of an importance does that play a role? And obviously your micronutrients are involved in energy production, you know, to, to the whole mm-hmm. uh, metabolic processes, et cetera, to create ATP. Yeah. But in terms of good health, and, and again, I know that's being a, a broad term because what, what does that actually mean? But how important is it, you know, how important is our diet in terms of um, building muscle and not just, you know, making sure that we get enough protein or, or, or yeah. carbohydrates or whatever? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because there actually have been a couple of really interesting studies um, in bodybuilders specifically uh, very recently. So just within the last few months. So in the, in the past couple of years, pre- people might be aware of the fact that um, gut microbiome literature has focused mostly on endurance athletes. And they found that generally speaking, cardiovascular fitness correlates with um, diversity. So diversity is the, the richness and the evenness of species uh, within the gut. And, and we generally assume that um, there's probably a, like a Goldilocks effect. You can have a little bit too much diversity. You can certainly have too little, but we want to have uh, a, a, an array of microbes and an array of genes so that there's a lot of functional capacity to the gut. And so when we compare the uh, diversity of people who are physically active to those who are not, we see it's higher in people who are physically active. And athletes specifically seem to have enrichment of certain microbes that produce butyrate, which is really beneficial short-chain fatty acid. And recently they found that um, some of the microbes are enriched that actually convert lactate to propionate. Um, so they're basically taking something that, you know, yeah, we can convert lactate to glucose, but it's sort of expensive and via ATP, but they're converting that to uh, propionate. And so they're, they're taking something that's not a super awesome energy source and they're making it into something that is a richer energy source, propionate being more energy dense. So it looks like the, the guts of athletes uh, tend to be, um, you know, there's some relationship there between the, the microbiota and exercise. 
and that there's also a relationship between obviously diet and exercise and diet and microbiota. And they probably are, it's probably a, a you know, tri-directional uh, axis going on. So recently they've looked specifically in at bodybuilders. Now there was one study um, that I mentioned actually when I was back in Dublin, they found that there was a negative correlation between um, numbers of bifidobacteria, which is a, a beneficial genus, um, and fat intake in bodybuilders. So the more fat that the bodybuilders were eating, the fewer numbers they had of this beneficial group of bacteria. Uh, and it could have been because they had a fiber deficient diet. And they found that the same could be said in cross-country runners. The higher their protein intake, the lower their microbial diversity. And they noted that in both cases, they were fiber deficient. We've also found in other research that a fiber deficient diet uh, in rodents leads to a thinning of the protective mucus layer in the large intestine. And then in humans, uh, standard American diet, which is fiber deficient um, and ketogenic diets also are associated with lower diversity, um, loss of bifidobacteria and an increase in bacteroides, which produces some compounds that have been associated with colorectal cancer. So it looks like fiber deficiency is probably a problem. And a recent study in rodents actually um, uh, did a great job of, of providing more support for that theory because they fed rodents um, both a high-fat diet that was uh, had high fiber and one that was low in fiber. Then they found that it was really, it wasn't about the fat so much, it was about the, the fiber deficiency um, because those microbes, rather than having those microbe accessible carbohydrates from the dietary fiber, they have to ferment other things. So they might go to the amino acids and that produces some of those potentially harmful compounds or they'll go to that protective mucus layer and break down the carbohydrates that are found there. So fast forward to this year, they, uh, there was a group that was looking at probiotic supplementation and bodybuilders. Now, it was really interesting. They found that the probiotic supplementation didn't really seem to do anything for anyone, but what they found that was really compelling was that the bodybuild, the group of bodybuilders who ate a high protein, low fiber diet, their microbial diversity was no different from the healthy controls. Whereas the bodybuilders who ate a diet that met the RDA for fiber and had a little bit lower protein intake, they did see uh, a greater enrichment of species, some greater diversity, markers of diversity in that group of bodybuilders. And this was a theory that was kind of built over time, looking at the role of, of fiber and, um, you know, complex carbohydrates and supporting a diverse microbiota. And it was something that I had mentioned last year that, you know, perhaps if even if people are exercising, but they're not eating a prudent diet and they're not providing adequate uh, levels of, of carbohydrates to these bacteria, I mean, you know, there's a chance that maybe they're not going to see um, or fully realize the effects of exercise. And it looks like that actually is the case. So if people are engaging in physical activity and, you know, they're bodybuilders and they want to um, keep health in mind, then it's very prudent to ensure that they're taking in adequate fiber. You mentioned, you know, looking at the gut um, uh, microbiome muscle, uh, the, the microbiome muscle axis, there's not a great deal of information in humans, but looking at germ-free mice, they are deficient in IGF-1, um, and, and they are, uh, or if they've induced dysbiosis in those mice, they find that there is um, less of a, a hypertrophic response to exercise. And it's one theory behind sarcopenia or age-related muscle loss that it's 
associated with that loss of microbial diversity. Mm. So, um, you know, the evidence right now shows that probably a good idea to get adequate fiber. Yeah. So it seems like it's a lot cheaper probably to eat your fiber than getting a probiotic. Um, but so when we're talking about these, uh, you know, the, the diversity within the gut, we're specifically talking about many different organisms, bacteria that are microscopic. Um, I know that there's a lot, but, but could you could you even put a number on it? The amount perhaps of the, the diversity of the different types and how do we, how, how do these organisms actually, um, you know, grow within the gut? It, it, it's, it's obviously not from, they're not live. We're not eating they're not live within the fiber, but they, they feed on these non-digestible carbohydrates, right? How do they actually mm-hmm. come to life? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. So well, we're actually first colonized um, maybe in utero. That's still a really contentious area that, that we, you know, there's some evidence that our intestines are not completely sterile in utero, but we're first colonized as uh, during the process of birth. So if we're born vaginally, we're going to be colonized primarily by fecal bacteria from the mother. Um, and that's because the vaginal canal is, you know, very in close proximity to the anus. And then there's, you know, people might get squicky about that. But, um, you know, previously people thought, oh, it's, you know, colonization through the vaginal canal. But that's primarily, lactobac- primarily lactobacilli. And what we really see initially blooming are bifidobacteria. Um, so that's where we get our first sort of inoculation. Now, if we're born via C-section, we won't have that initial exposure. And so we'll first be colonized with more of the bacteria that we might find on skin. Um, so there can be a delayed colonization. We see the same thing when we compare bottle versus breastfed, that individuals who are bottle fed may see delayed or reduced diversity um, convert, compared to those who are breastfed because breast milk contains um, specific carbohydrates called human milk oligosaccharides. And we actually can't produce those in a lab yet. It's really interesting. So um, those are some of the the differences that we see early in life. And we see a really huge bloom when we start eating solid foods and we're getting some more of those dietary, um, uh, you know, carbohydrates, those microbe accessible carbohydrates that are not digestible to humans, primarily in the form of dietary fiber and resistant starch. The anatomy of the digestive tract also changes as we get older. Uh, Initially, it's more permeable. And so um, the bacteria there have to be a little bit more um, aerotolerant or tolerant to oxygen and becomes more anaerobic as we age. Now, the colonization of the GI tract is variable as we move from the stomach, which is really high in acid. We see very low numbers of bacteria and low diversity, um, but we do see some lactobacilli hanging out there. As we move through the small intestine and then into the large intestine, we see that the numbers and the diversity of microbes increase. When we get to the large intestine or the colon, that's where we see most of the microbes. We have tens of trillions of microbes, like actually a couple kilograms of biomass of microbes in the gut. It's a staggering number. They're mostly bacteria, um, but we also have some archaea. So we have some some methanogens there that help to um, make it a place that is really good for fermentation. And then we also have some fungi. We have yeasts there, and yeast gets a really bad rep, but um, there's actually one form of a yeast that's a really effective probiotic, and yeast seem to play a very important role in helping to educate and and, um, mature our immune system. So these microbes um, live in the 
the lumen, so the center hole of the gut, we think of it like a long hose. And some of them also will live in the first layer of mucus that covers those intestinal cells in the large intestine. But the second layer of mucus that's close to the intestinal cells, that should pretty much be sterile. But they can still interact with those intestinal cells, and they can also interact with the immune cells that hang out just below those intestinal cells. So that's how they're sort of interacting with our body um, very directly, but they're also producing compounds called postbiotics, so short-chain fatty acids would be one example, and those are things that we can use for, for um, energy, uh, and they also can, can bind to certain receptors and send messages in that way, so they can also have more of a peripheral effect um, on, on sort of the entirety of human physiology. And the way that they are um, doing that is through, through fermentation. And so they're sort of oxidizing these carbohydrates or amino acids. Um, and some of them require it to be an anaerobic process. Others are okay um, in an oxygenated environment. And so we see that the types of microbes um, also change as we move from stomach, which is going to have uh, more oxygen and be more acidic, versus the colon, it's anaerobic and very low acidity levels there. So, as you mentioned, a lot of them seem to, a lot of our diversity um, seems to happen from er from early ages. We're growing, or you know, when we're born, a lot with them. Mm -hmm. So, does that mean that let's say we have a very poor diet and we have this dysbiosis, or in other words, kind of, I don't know what another word for that is, um, a change, I guess, in in your gut microbiome, and and say a certain strain or bacteria is is very low come does that can go can that like go to zero and we would never kind of bring that back to life that makes sense or if we start eating well again you know does that come back to life since you, you mentioned it's actually we're kind of born with i mean get it as or we they start to develop as we age or up to up to a certain extent yeah well it would be very difficult to study that because yeah. when, and, and that, so that hasn't been done in terms of like going to zero, um, because when a numbers of microbes get really, really low, because harder for us to identify that they're there. Now, there are different ways of analyzing um, who's there and different ways that, that different um, like uh, ways that we can quantify diversity. And so some methods will focus more on like the low abundant species. Um, but in some cases, you know, a lot of what's less expensive will kind of glaze over them. And so we might just mm. say that they're not there, even if they are. So that exact thing hasn't been done yet. But in terms of looking at fluctuations in microbial profiles over time, it actually looks like the gut is pretty resilient, um, that the vast majority of it uh, doesn't really seem to change at all. So that's the other thing we have to keep in mind. we are kind of building on what people have found before. So um, that makes it hard to, it makes it impossible to identify everyone that's there. But about 
based on what we see so far, about 60 to 80% of our uh, microbial inhabitants hang out with us pretty much no matter what. Um, and that there have been some studies that have shown that like even when people do some sort of lifestyle intervention, they may see some changes initially. And then, of course, if they stop the intervention, they revert back to baseline. But even over time, as they've continued that intervention, they still see some um, reverting back to baseline. You know, there's recovery after antibiotic use. Um, there's recovery after illness. But, you know, it's hard to say, like, what is our real, like, native, like, like native, you know, baseline, because it, it is somewhat still dynamic over time. Yeah, it's affected by everything, isn't it, right, from coffee to training to, so how do we, how do we know then what is, like, quote, unquote, good or, or healthy or optimal for us? And then if, if, if we're not too clear on that, then how do we know what we should be doing in terms of, because we, we often hear, well, you know, fermented foods are good for your good health. But if I'm feeling fine and, you know, I don't really know what's going on in there because I, I don't really understand that, that well, you know, should I have kefir? Should I eat sauerkraut? Uh, do I need to take different types of fibers? You know, you know, what's good first, first of all? And I guess that, that's mm-hmm. probably a hard answer and the question to answer. And then how do we improve on good or how do we know if it's bad? You know, mm. Yeah, those are the million dollar questions because we actually don't have one profile of good uh, or one profile of bad. We don't have one profile of what we consider to be Mm. a healthy gut um, because our healthy controls look different based on the the region from which we've collected them, South Korea versus U.S. versus, you know, um, like rural West Africa. Um, We tend to assume that greater diversity is synonymous with good, but that's not necessarily the case because if you have diversity um, and you have a, you know, a a large, like a wide variety of species and a relative, you know, rich, uh, a relative, relatively even distribution, you could have um, theoretically a gut that's almost an unstable ecosystem because there are no, um, like there's no strong foundation in any one group really what we would hope to see would be that you would have the um, kind of keystone species that we see are like, okay, this is, we can identify that a human, that this is a human microbiome by looking at these specific species. And some of them that are come up very often would be F. presnitii, um, acromantia, uh, uh, mucinophilia, um, roseberia. So we have some of these that were like, okay, these, these species or these genera, these are, we should see these in a human. So if they're completely gone, then we would say, well, maybe uh, that could be dysbiosis, but we don't know what the clinical outcome is because we don't know what they're actually doing. We're just saying like, these should probably be here. And if they're not, that could be indicative of a problem, but we don't know what the problem is. And we also don't know is it's actually, there is a problem that's causing them to be gone. You know, like, yeah. is it the disease that's causing that? Yeah. So we don't, so yeah. So we don't have that, that, uh, that knowledge yet. And so when it comes to making recommendations, you know, this is why people I think are, are frustrated maybe with my, with my material that I'm like, ah, probably just eat a wide variety of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, because we don't even know which one of these microbes likes which type of fiber. And we've tried, we've looked, it's just that they're not, it's not a, uh, a unilateral 
um, relationship, you know, that, that it could be that the fiber, you know, this, we're ingesting some form of fiber and it's causing the growth of this microbe. And that microbe creates a postbiotic that actually feeds this other microbe. Well, this other microbe grows so quickly that we say, oh, wow, this one really, you know, this bloomed. It must really like the fiber. No, it didn't do anything at all with the fiber, but it was feeding off whatever postbiotic was made by the other microbe. So, yeah. yeah. So when it comes to like making really, you know, clear recommendations, it was just not there yet, you know, like, so yeah, eat a wide variety of plant-based foods because we don't know who likes what engage in some form of physical activity because we see physically active people, you know, seem to have more diversity and that's probably a good thing, but there's a Goldilocks effect to that too. We can have too much physical activity and then, you know, that can cause severe GI distress. Um, and even when we're trying to identify like, Hey, do I need to do X, Y, and Z? Like I feel fine. Well, you won't necessarily have symptoms of some gastrointestinal diseases. Um, others you may have symptoms of. Sometimes you may have some GI distress. There's nothing wrong with your gut. It's just that you have microbes that really like to ferment um, whatever, you know, fermentable fiber to a lot of gas. And now you're yeah. experiencing gas and bloating. And then you think, oh, I have bad gut health. Yeah, that was going to be my next question is based off of the, like our diet, or you know on our, on our microbiome does it prefer certain types of fibers or can we just you know well i've eaten uh, 200 grams of oats today so i've got my fiber intake or should we be trying to get a wide variety of fruits and vegetables or is it just kind of a best guess at the moment well we we can see that they do prefer soluble fibers. So those are generally speaking the more fermentable fibers. So the ones that will get um, soft and form a gel in water, that the insoluble, more structural fibers like cellulose, those aren't readily fermented. So when we are trying to decide, you know, what type of fiber we want to take in, um, or, you know, how do we enrich like prebiotic, that's what we would say, like prebiotics in the diet. We don't have to supplement with those, thank goodness. All we have to do is eat fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, um, and, and nuts. And so, yes, it still is about getting dietary variety. Um, and there is also, you know, a ceiling to how much fiber we can probably comfortably ingest, maybe around 70 grams a day. Um, but some people eat more than that. We can certainly train the gut in a, in a variety of ways when it comes to, you know, carbohydrate ingestion during exercise. And very likely we could see some adaptations in the microbial and functional diversity that would adapt to greater fiber intake. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, if, if a person's only eating, um, you know, all of their fiber, like they're getting, you know, 40 grams of fiber a day, but it's only from zucchini or only from cucumber or only from lettuce, it's going to be more insoluble fiber, more mm. of the structural fibers in the skins. That might not be as supportive of the microbes there is getting a variety from like mm. whole grains, um, oatmeal, adding some fruit to the oatmeal. I always recommend like eat some vegetables at every meal. Um, you know, and that way you can have some dietary variety, not just for the microbes, but also for the variety of micronutrients that you would get from those foods. Yeah. 40 grams of uh, fiber from lettuce. It's a, it's a lot of lettuce. That would be a lot <laughs> of lettuce. Yeah. You want to be like a, a gorilla or a cow or something to get that. Um, so uh, I remember when I first kind of started listening to podcasts, Joe Rogan podcast was one of the first ones. I think he's probably the, the mm. one of the first podcasts, but he's always had a, had Rhonda Patrick on. And I know she's not the, the, the best person to kind of look for, for nutrition advice, but she has a big audience. And I remember 
couple of years ago, her she she was mentioning a probi or maybe yeah probiotics, and I think it was one called VLS three or something like that. And oh yeah, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. And she was kind of saying, well, this is the best one probiotic because you know don't know much about the others. But if you're talking about we have trillions of you know organisms in our gut, and this is specific three or four strains that are going to be like good for our gut. How do we know if a probiotic is good for us, um, or even works or perhaps it's bad for us. I know that some people have, have taken them after uh, antibiotics and I don't really want to talk that much about medicine, but uh, I've, I've had people or no friends who've taken probiotics and they basically just crap themselves for a few days and that's working, you know, as if it's like a plumber coming in to just clean your pipes, metaphorically speaking. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, What's well, so funny you mentioned BSL-3. That was actually the probiotic that I used um, oh, okay. for, for my dissertation. So, um, and, and in, in, those interventions, it wasn't effective for the application that we were uh, examining. So we were trying to determine: you know, does probiotic supplementation with this um, with this group? This at the time there are different formulations. We used a, a, an eight strain formulation. Would this protect against the metabolic dysregulation that we see as a result of chronic um, high fat diet? And we found no. But there were some limitations to that study. For example, the mice didn't get, uh, they didn't they didn't gain fat like we thought they were going to. And it could be because I was orally gavaging them with probiotics every day. So they're like, my throat hurts or I'm stressed out. I don't want to eat all this food. Um, but we, we didn't see it in the, in the subsequent human study either. Um, you know, we saw a little bit of a, a protection of, of insulin resistance and, and that was about it. So it depends on what we want that probiotic to do. That's how we determine whether it works really, you know, do we want it to reduce markers of inflammation? Do we want it to improve um, constipation? Do we want it to reduce, you know, diarrhea? The effects of probiotics from what we can tell are very strain specific. So we, we have um, a, a genus like bifidobacteria, it's a big group, and then we have a species, and then we have a subspecies. So the subspecies or the strain um, is a very specific um, uh, way of describing how closely things are genetically related. And so it would be like the difference between a dingo and a dog. Those, that's, the, that's the subspecies um, differentiation that most people would be familiar with. So we could take E. coli, for example. Um, there are, are strains of E. coli that produce toxins that make us very sick. But then there's also E. coli nisile, which is a probiotic. So the effects are, like I said, we can be very specific. And so if we're taking a probiotic that's been shown to be really effective for um, reducing the severity of diarrhea, um, and then we look at, you know, what does it do for insulin sensitivity? And it does nothing. Well, we wouldn't say as, as a whole, it's not effective. It just doesn't help mm. with insulin sensitivity, but it does have this other application. And so that's what we usually find with probiotics. The effects are specific in that way. And also in terms of the population. So in some cases, probiotics seem to be very effective for children, but not uh, for adults for like the same thing, like pediatric diarrhea, lactobacillus rhamnosus, GG seems to be really effective hasn't been replicated in adults. We've tried, they just don't seem to respond to it. So probiotics do have applications, but they're fairly limited at the moment. And yep. the and, and then when people say something like, you know, oh, does, you know, a probiotic like enrich or re-inoculate the gut? 
we don't have strong evidence to show that that's necessarily the case because they will go in one end and out the other uh, consistently, reliably. We'll be able to say, oh, yeah, we see that they're enriched in your fecal matter. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are taking up residence in your gut, but that might not actually matter so much. So they might be able to pass through and it's just like transient visitors interact with other microbes on the way through and cause them to change in some way. Yeah. So we don't even know that that's necessarily that, that it's necessary for them to, to take up residence. So, so it sounds like you, it's more like you only want to be taking probiotics if you got them from your doctor, not because I want to improve my gut health or become healthier if you're already. Uh, and even then it's almost like self-medicating to an extent if you're taking probiotics. Well, yeah. And it's, so it depends. I mean, in the U S like doctors might recommend like, Oh, I think you should take a probiotic with this, but you, but, but they're not, they're not controlled here. So you can like go anywhere and get probiotics. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, in itself could be a limitation because of the way that supplements in the U S are regulated that, um, manufacturers can go to a third party for, uh, testing for, for purity. Um, but that doesn't necessarily indicate that it's going to be effective or safe. And there are some contraindications to probiotic supplementation because now it's coming to, to light that they um, may pose a risk to individuals who have you know, severe ulcerations if they have like ulcerative colitis or something. Um, there have been some documented cases of bacterial translocation of um, fungal infections in the blood because you know full, full, full organisms might be able to pass through a very permeable intestine. They may interact with um, other oral drugs like cancer treatment. Uh, the gut microbiome does play a role in drug metabolism. So if they would by chance enrich, they could modify the way that drugs are affecting that person who's taking the probiotic. Um, and then, you know, it, it could be that they just take the, a different probiotic from what would actually be helpful for them. And then they're just wasting money, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and um, it's also there was a recent study that illustrated that there was a delay in reestablishment of the microbiome after treatment with antibiotics in folks who are taking uh, a probiotic. So they're not without risk. They're not like safe just because they're natural. They're not always effective. Um, and we don't even really have great recommendations for like what to look for in a probiotic. Doesn't necessarily have to be multi-strain, but it probably has to be several billion CFUs and probably has to be taken maybe, you know, more than once a day um, for, I don't know, maybe weeks to, to see any effect. Yeah. So it sounds like it's not something you want to treat like a, an, an extra supplement to your kind of arsenal of, of creatine and pre-workout or whatever you're taking. Uh, but, right. but it's definitely something that I think health conscious people often consider. It's like, I'm going to take a probiotic because my good health and that's kind of the extent yeah. of their knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. Just a few questions before we wrap up that on from a practical yeah. perspective. Is there any, I know we don't consume foods as a single like a single source, like we don't consume polyunsaturated fats or saturated fats, right. but that's the way we ought, people often look, look at food in terms of it's, it's not food, but it's constituents. So is there any foods that we consume in the diet that can actively affect negatively our gut and then perhaps how we, how we, how we feel or our health in general on an acute level? Is, is there anything that you've seen that, you know, often we'll hear people saying, you know, well, we've mentioned the thing about get, getting gas from eating certain types of mm -hmm. fermentable carbohydrates. You know, you'll, you'll notice yeah. that protein bars and stuff like that, or too much mm -hmm. chewing gum. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. 
Um, I noticed that when I was prepping, I didn't eat like four mm-hmm. packs a day and then just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's when the calories add up from no calorie uh, gum mm-hmm. or calorie free gum. But is there any foods that, you know, we can specifically eat people, other people will say, mention things like aspartame or other artificial sweeteners, you know, they cause gut dysbiosis or they, they're not good for your gut. And then that will often transfer too well. We have this gut brain axis, so it's not good for your brain and et cetera. So, and, and you often hear this term, um, you know, you, you know, you are what you eat and, you know, the food that you eat affects how you feel, which to an extent, I definitely believe that, but what, what are your thoughts on, on just food and its effect on the gut itself? in the context of a good diet so yeah yeah i mean if i'm you know if there's a food that i would say would have an an acute effect on the gut it would be sugar alcohols because they're so readily fermented and they are so osmotically active that pretty much right away if you eat a little bit too much of a sugar alcohol um you know xylitol sorbitol um maltitol anything like things that end in an all except for erythritol it's not really readily fermented those will have a laxative effect cause a lot of gas um probably your microbes are super happy to be you know metabolizing those but um if you have severe diarrhea there that could potentially kind of flush out some of the um, microbes that are hanging out in the lumen of the gut and so you know if that's something that's happened chronically that could certainly be um, a problem, but there's really no food in isolation that will have an acute effect on the microbial community or um, the, the, you know, the uh, gut or gut health aside from like gluten in a person with, with celiac disease or a person who's got an allergy. Yeah. So looking at, at whole dietary patterns, the one that comes up most often for being um, very, you know, supportive of health all around would be a Mediterranean style dietary pattern. And that is, it's an omnivorous um, way of eating. So there's no like real benefit to being vegan or vegetarian compared to being a prudent omnivore. Um, But looking at like the dietary extremes, like if someone does want to do the carnivore diet, um, after hearing everything that we've talked about in this podcast is probably clear that that is maybe not uh, the most prudent thing to do because it's not going to provide any um, microbe accessible carbohydrates. Um, But yeah, aside from that, I mean, there are um, really prudent ways to do most ways of eating. And then there are very imprudent ways to do those same ways of eating. So just on the gluten piece, and I know you've probably bored to death talking about gluten, but um, is there kind of a, a scale of, well, I'm not celiac, but you know, I'm not going to eat gluten because or I'm going to eat gluten-free oats. I remember when I was 19, I, I had my very first coach, uh, t- 2011. Like I, I found him on a forum, so he's not wasn't that reputable. But he told me I had to eat gluten-free oats. And I was, it was pretty expensive, actually, at the time because gluten yeah. wasn't that popular. I mean, eating gluten-free for non-celiacs wasn't that popular. Right. Um, so yeah. it was like five times the price. <laughs> um, oh. But but is there any is there any benefits or could there be any issues at all with eating gluten because people say well i'm not celiac but you know um it, it's it might cause a little bit of impermeability or or you know a little bit of gluten it can can affect the, the 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 lining of the lumen and then affect you know particles of food will get through and they won't be digested and then you'll get these uh you know intolerances to food i've heard these all things before what are your thoughts on that so non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not yet um, an agreed-upon diagnosis or or disease state. 
Um, there are people who report having GI distress when they eat gluten-containing foods. And that is certainly reasonable. And the other proposed mechanism behind that is that they're not having a response to the gluten, which is the protein, that they're actually having GI distress because of the fructans, which are a fermentable carbohydrate found in wheat products. And it's part of the group of FODMAPs. So if people tend to experience GI distress eating like garlic, onions, um, a lot of uh, vegetarian and vegan foods, and a lot of sort of like health foods contain chicory root, which is a form of inulin. Um, all of those are within the same group of fructans, and they are uh, known to cause GI distress because they're osmotically active and they're readily fermentable. So if you're getting a lot of bloating, gas, loose stools, and things like that, um, that it might not be the gluten, it might actually be the fructans. And so that is, I think, just an area of, of maybe um, confusion and the fact that people are extrapolating information from cell culture models and from rodent models of inflammatory bowel disease and, and like DSS colitis mice, where they've given them a, a chemical that causes colitis. And then they say, okay, what's the effect of gluten on these mice? And then there's an inflammatory response. But when we're looking at healthy humans, that's a different case. And we have to um, wait for better, you know, confirmatory trials to say like, okay, yes, it actually is the gluten. It's absolutely not the fructans. It's nothing else. It's just the gluten. And it happens in healthy people and it happens in this amount. And then we can, you know, start coming up with some recommendations, but we just are not there yet. It's it might go the same way that we saw with like MSG, where people were like, MSG causes migraines. And then in these, these, these double-blind placebo-controlled trials, there's just a nocebo effect. People think they're getting MSG, and so they get a migraine, even though they've gotten nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that could be another part of it. You know that, that uh, there could be a nocebo effect occurring there as well. Yeah, I think I remember my dad used to say that after eating Chinese food, he get he gets like a food migraine food uh, hangover because of the mm-hmm. MSG, but it probably could have been that he ate like four thousand calories. <laughs> right, that's the other thing. I'm like, so some people will restrict these foods so much, and then when they do eat like bread, for example, they might eat so much of it because they've been restricting, and they're like, oh, I don't feel good, and and it's like probably yeah, yeah. you know mo- a lot of people wouldn't feel good be- because of like the amounts that they're eating because they have this like mm. restrictive cycle, and so it can be very useful to test, you know, kind of bust that myth for yourself and say like, Oh, well, how do I feel after I eat like one piece of bread? Um, Oh, not so bad. Okay. Then, you know, maybe it's not so much the, the bread, it's not so much the gluten. It could be other factors. Yeah. And, and final question then, is there any, is there any problems with having like gas now and then or bloating, you know, so let's say someone likes to drink milk and it's not like, causing them to, to run to the toilet every few minutes, but they have some gas or they eat certain foods and they've got gas and it doesn't affect anybody other than the person they live with. Is that, is that a, is that something they need to be worried or actively trying to fix where it's like, yeah, I never have any bloating. I like, I never hold any water. I never have gas. I never have any discomfort. Is that, is that what we're trying to achieve? Or is this something at least natural and, and, you know, part of a healthy gut? 
Well, gas production is certainly very natural. We produce lots of gas. I want to say, oh, it's somewhere in the realm of like liters per day. Um, so we, we naturally produce quite a lot of gas. That's just one of the um, products of fermentation. Um, now, whether we pass that gas comfortably, that's another story. So if gas is getting trapped, um, that can be very uncomfortable. And, you know, that could certainly be a quality of life issue, uh, or if it's causing a lot of bloating and distension and things like that, you know, that could certainly be problematic. And then of course there, there are types of gases that might be, um, you know, associated with colorectal cancer. Uh, but the, you know, having like passing wind and, and feeling bloated sometimes, so that's within like normal um, GI function. There can be fluctuations in, um, you know, stool quality as well. Sometimes we might experience some constipation, sometimes some diarrhea. Um, you know, I don't want to get into to diagnose, diagnostic criteria, but there are diagnostic criteria, the Rome criteria for diagnosing constipation and diarrhea. And that's something that you would want to go to your doctor with, you know, if it was something that was happening multiple times within a week, then you would want to go visit your gastro and, you know, don't be shy. Tell them everything that's going on. That's what they're there for. You know, if you're noticing like unusual stool color, you know, if it's very light or if it's super, super dark, you know, those are things to talk about a lot of like mucus in your stool and things like that. You know, those are things that you would want to, to bring, you know, to your doctor's attention. But if you have some dairy, and then you have some gas after that. Like most people are lactose intolerant. Doesn't necessarily mean you're causing any damage. It's just that the lactose wasn't broken down by you. It was broken down by the microbes in your gut. And so you're having more gas than, than normal. Mm. So you mean it, it was broken down in the, the small intestine? And it, right. The large intestine? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah that's, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's been great. It's, uh, that's been very, very uh, interesting and uh, helpful. And hopefully the, the listeners find it helpful as well. But where can people find more information about you? Um, so they can check me out on Instagram, vitamin PhD. I also have vitaminphdnutrition.com. Um, and I post all of the, the podcasts and, and learning opportunities um, up there. Um, I'm collaborating on a research study at the moment. We're looking at the effects of resistance training on GI distress um, and how that might be gender specific. Um, so they can learn more about that if they want to get uh, involved in that, uh, supporting that, that research endeavor. And I also have btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. That is my collaboration with Shannon Beer, where we talk all things coaching. And we also have a comprehensive coaching Facebook community now. So there are a lot of ways to get involved, whether it's, you know, strictly gut microbiome stuff or wanting to learn about coaching or, um, you know, clients in our coaching when it comes to navigating a lot of the myths and misinformation, you know, how we can um, help to empower people in a very client-centered and, uh, you know, consistent way. Yeah, I think that's definitely something people should check out if they're interested in being a coach because coaching is a skill and not just your ability to create Excel spreadsheets, etc. Um, but thanks so much for coming on and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. You too.